Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I am joined today by my good friends and partners in radio, Matthew Feideman and AJ Molnix. Welcome back, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Where have you been? I think people are in anticipation, just eagerly waiting to hear what's been going on with you guys for the last three weeks. I've been sick. No. Yeah. I don't know with what, but it's it's nasty, whatever it is. Are you better? I'm feeling better every day. Every day, little by little. Yep. Just like sanctification. Yep. Mm-hmm. Full sort of glory. Yep. Amen. Matthew, what's been going on with you? Uh, I've been a little sick also. And then when I wasn't sick, I was just avoiding you and the podcast. So. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. Sorry. I got behind on the this reading. public admission is like devastating. Oh, I'm sorry. If there's anything I'm known for, it's public admissions. Yeah. But not like publicly admitting people to an event. Like it's not like we have a public admission for our podcasts, but you're admitting something publicly. That's devastating to me. I'm sorry. It slays me, as the Gen Zers say. Do they? Yeah. Who are the Zers? I don't know. They're a little sus. What, What years is that? I don't know. Younger than me. Oh. I think if you're like 22 and below, you're probably Gen Z. Mm, okay. I don't know. We can look it up. Yeah, between the ages of 18 and 25. This says 97 to 2012. That seems like too broad of a thing. That's 15 years. Well, generation is 20 years, right? Oh. I don't know. They're going to have to start condensing that because s- things happen a lot quicker now. You know what I mean? Things change a lot quicker now than they used to for like all of history. Like we didn't have the internet in the early 90s. That's true. And now we got cell phones that can fly. You know? Cell phones that can fly? Well, all right. That was an exaggeration. But you know what I mean? Technology's going fast. Like a drone? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think you've made a great case. I think each generation should be measured in five-year increments. I think I'd probably be pretty accurate. So that way five-year-olds can look scornfully at newborn babies and be like, ugh, those whatever generation they are. Some do that anyway, so. Do they? I've heard that. Sometimes like when people have a baby, their other small children are resentful at first because they're getting less attention. I know when we brought home our first kid, our dog stopped eating. Oh, yeah. Dogs do that too. Yeah. No way. He wanted attention. Wow. Hunger protest. (laughs) Yeah, hunger strike. Hunger strike. I'm not going to eat until you show me some love. Yep. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons? I've never watched any episodes of The Simpsons. Okay, never mind. There's a hunger strike one. Oh. I mean, that's a real thing that people have done. Yeah. Didn't Gandhi do that? I don't know. What was his horse's name? He had a horse? Yeah, what's his name? Yeah, Gandhi went on a hunger strike many times between 1913 and 1948. Pokey. That's his name, Pokey. Gumby. (laughs) I'm talking about Gandhi. I know, I'm just being dumb. (laughs) You're succeeding. You're very accomplished at G- that. Gandhi would just ride around on pokey and refuse <laughs> to eat and proclaim his uh, his uh, his thing he was standing for. His intention. His. Why can't I think of the word I'm looking for? Cause? 
Maybe cause. Yeah, that would work. Anyways. It's hard for me to know if it's good content or not because I've been recording by myself for the last month pretty much. Yeah. And I didn't have any of this in there. Uh-huh. In part because there was no one else to talk to. I mean, it probably would have come across really weird if you bantered with yourself. You'd seem crazy. Yeah. What was that movie with the crazy guy where he had all those personalities? Yeah, there's only one. Remember? He had a bunch of them. I don't know. Oh, like the math guy that Russell Crowe pr- plays? Oh, Beautiful no. Mind. Beautiful Mind. No, it was more. That's, re- what, that's what I was thinking of. More recent yeah. than that. That, it's kind of like he has. If anybody knows the movie I'm talking yeah, about. Uh, he has like, it's like he's dreaming up. No, Yeah, like the delusion of grandeur thing. No, this was a crazy guy. I think that maybe committed crimes. If anybody knows what movie I'm talking about, email it in and you'll win a free book. We still have that book, right? Where are you <laughs> where are you wanting them to email? It uh, doesn't really matter. Resurrectionchurchmn.org. Or yeah, no, resurrectionmn.org. Um, it's office at clbcmn.org. There we go. You'll win a free book. Yep. If we don't have that one, if you know my obscure movie reference, yeah. So the the disease in a beautiful mind is schizophrenia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that multiple personality disorder? Yeah. Is are they the same thing? Yeah. I don't think so. Like you're a schizo. That's what the kids say. Yeah, they're medical experts. So. Yeah, those Gen Zers. Maybe they are. Maybe they go well together. Those two different diseases. Maybe. Disorders. Sorry. Um, according to WebMD, oh. a person with schizophrenia doesn't have two different personalities. Instead, they have false ideas or have lost touch with reality. Multiple personal, multiple personality disorder is unrelated. Oh. End quote. September 27, 2020. Hmm. By um, Stephanie Watson, reviewed by Jennifer Casarea. MD. Now, what disease did Nebuchadnezzar have when he turned into a falcon cow? Dude, I think here's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. He had lost touch with reality prior to this, and this brought him back to reality. Ooh, I like this take. Yeah. So his real mental illness was, was when deluded. he was deluded into thinking he was stronger than God. Right. Yeah, one of those is intended to look more absurd. And it's not the one when he is acting like an animal in the field. Interesting. Hmm. The movie was split. I found it on Google. Sweet. Who directed it? I think it was M. Night Shyamalan. Dude, that guy directs some trippy films is what I've heard. I've never seen any of them. He has like a cult following, right? It's a reference in The Office about him. Is there? Yeah. Remember like Michael thinks he's seen Johnny Depp in his... Apartment complex or something, his condo complex. I don't recall this. Yeah, and Jim thinks he's, you know, of course, not in reality. And then he's like, yeah, I don't know. The name on the uh, mailbox is M. Shyamalan. And then Jim, (laughs) like, looks and it's like, oh, man, because he's from that area or something. No way. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I've missed that. How have you never, you've watched through it, like, a a million times. I know. There are lots of other things to pay attention to. Dense. Show. It's thick, man. There there are so many uh, multiple layers. So much to get at in the office. In college, I had a blog. And no. I, 
believe it or not. Why are you saying that, AJ? <laughs> I had a blog, and I once wrote a post, like, to, like commenting on some theological thing in the office. I don't remember what it was. And then my friend Shane was like, dude, you're just trying to justify why you're watching The Office. (laughs) Was he against The Office? I don't think he was watching it. Mm. Well, Matthew is the guy who's probably read the most of the assigned reading for this week. Why don't you uh, lead us into you, Daniel? Yeah, so we have this guy named Daniel, and he's taken into Babylon, but he's highly faithful. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but then God reveals the dream to Daniel or somebody, but God reveals the dream. Uh, And it, in fact, is Daniel (laughs) that (laughs) interprets it. And then Daniel's promoted. (coughs) He's promoted thusly. uh, (laughs) He won't bow down to a golden (laughs) image. I mean, none well, of that is from what our reading was for this week, oh. but you're doing fine. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's furnace breaks, but Daniel fixes it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. AJ, do you think that Matthew actually read the text for this week? Who can say? I think it's possible. That reminds All right. I do like the beginning of the first half of Daniel. More than the second half. Well, it's definitely easier to read. That's, that's why I like it. I can, I can understand it. Be like, all right, these people trusted God, and God's doing some fun miracles here. And then at the end, then, then we get into some apocalyptic visions and angels explaining stuff and eagles and wheels and fire. And, and then there's something about the new you know, resurrection of a promise to Daniel that he'll be resurrected. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then it just ends. Go. Is Ezekiel. it a wheel within a wheel? No. Oh, nope. That's right. Ezekiel. All right. Now, Daniel responds to a lot of these visions with physical distress. Did you relate to him? You know, because you were laid up for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, especially where he, doesn't he see God or sees the angel or someone? And he immediately was like, oh, I feel sick. I'm going to faint. Fall yeah. over, and then like the guy puts his hand on him and helps him like, up. Hey, get back up, bud. Yep. Now, as we're reading the second half of Daniel, I I just have to say I don't know what a lot of this means. I wish that I had more time to look into it. Um, I don't know how much of it should just be understood as this has already been fulfilled in the Israel leaving Babylon. These sorts of things. I I don't know. But I want to comment on something that I thought was interesting. Now, AJ and Matthew, if you could turn your attention to Daniel 7, verse 13, there's this phrase that there was one like a son of man. This guy was coming with the clouds of heaven. What do you imagine? What, what's in your like mind's eye when you hear that phrase? Because this phrase will appear in our Revelation reading as well, is like a direct citation. So we have to figure out what we should be imagining here. I imagine someone coming down in the clouds. I don't know. But it looks like it's at night, so I don't know exactly. Not seeing it in my head. Ooh. So in your 
just... imagination. It's at night, so it's kind of like dark. Yeah. Okay. Matthew, what do you imagine when it's you cloudy. hear the phrase, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven? I don't... What? ESV. This says, there came one like a Son of Man. Yeah. Yeah, one like a Son of Man. So it sounds like it's not him. Not who? The Son of Man. He's like a Son of Man. Well, Son of Man is maybe just a stock phrase for a human being oh wasn't jeremiah or ezekiel was called the son of man i think ezekiel yeah yeah Yeah, kind of a lowly figure i remember thinking that was yeah so but but then remember in revelation where this is quoted in revelation chapter one there's this uh, look he is coming with the clouds Mm. you know in, in reference to jesus so my question is what what pops in your mind when you hear that phrase. So when it says like a son of man, it just means someone hu- that looks like a human. A humanoid, a oh. human figure. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a clunky. And this becomes a messianic term, right? And Jesus takes it on as he identifies himself as the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Yeah, that's what was confusing me. Yeah, so what what do you do with that image of him um, coming with the clouds? Looks like a big storm front, a big shelf cloud, and Jesus is on it, showing up. But it's during the day, or maybe the I evening. I think it could be just maybe having us try to reference that it's not just a human, but maybe someone that's more than that, or divine, maybe. Yeah. So that especially in contrast to this little horn, who's this arrogant, mm-hmm. like, earthly ruler. This is my theory. Okay. And you guys can tell me if it passes your examination or not. All right. So in the vision, the Ancient of Days. What does that mean, by the way? It's a reference to God. Oh, all right. Um, He's in heaven, sitting on his throne. And the Son of Man comes up to heaven with the clouds mm-hmm. to the throne. So then when it's quoted in Revelation as well, if you keep reading in Revelation... Everything is centered on the throne room. So once again, it's not Jesus coming down to earth with the clouds. It's a picture of him coming post-resurrection ascension, which can be confirmed in Acts when the disciples are looking up into the air as Jesus is ascending and then is hidden from them by a cloud. So so I think often I've heard of this described as Jesus coming down to earth in the clouds in, in this verse and others cited. Revelation, um, and I think it's the opposite direction because the viewpoint is from the the throne room, mm-hmm. heaven, not earth. Yeah, makes sense. I like it. It seems to really fit. Anything else in Daniel you wanted to talk about, AJ? No, like I said, I I kind of wish I was. I haven't listened to your episode from. I haven't edited last week, so I don't know. I assume it went great, but I, that's what I would have been like. Some kind of fun, you know, childhood stories. Like maybe let's talk a little bit deeper about some of these. Yeah, and I, I didn't deep dive any of them. I know. I was so tired, so I don't know that it was great. Hmm. Well. I just didn't want to go, like, miss one a, week. You had some probably decent, like, stuff ready for first, second, third John, right? Like, I actually didn't dive into it that much because okay. I said there are recordings on our website. Oh. So if you Did want you more. That? So during the COVID shutdown, 
okay. I taught, I would record myself teaching through a section for 20 minutes and it's all YouTube videos, but we also have the audio on the website. Okay. Yeah, you guys weren't there yet. All right. Well, let's move on to Hosea. AJ, what stood out to you in the book of Hosea? Some of the graphic nature of the the story here yes. stood out. So do you remember when we started doing an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading every Sunday? And I'm pretty sure the first book we did was Hosea. Was it? So like that's like all of the sexual imagery and that kind of stuff was the first exposure for our church to Old and New Testament reading on a Sunday. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the graphic nature that stood out of the story, you know, is just a reminder of the ugliness of sin and how Israel acted. And, you know, we're just remember that they were an example for us. And it's, it's good for us to read it. It's good for us to be thankful for the time that we live in that have, you know, where we still have the similar temptations, but we again have this example of, how God deals with his people, but it is also, you know, wants to bless the righteous ones and those who follow. And, you know, he cares about the Israelites and wants, you know, that's why he's having Hosea do this is to have mm-hmm. this graphic picture. Yeah. Yeah. He wants them to live in faithfulness to him. I think that's bride and husband imagery is obviously really important, but I'd say maybe at the heart of the book, in Hosea 6, 7, Israel is compared to Adam, who violated the covenant. Um, so this is a really debated translational issue. So some people will say that there's a town called Adam, you know, but they, like the town of Adam, have violated the covenant. There, in Adam, they have betrayed me. Um, other... other People will say, no, Adam should just be translated humankind here. Like it is very initially in Genesis 126 where God made humankind, Adam in his image. So they're saying, no, it's not like there's a covenant with Adam and Eve. It's just like humans are naturally covenant breakers. But I'm inclined to say the CSB has it right. And Adam is a person. Um, and like Adam, God, you know, God had a covenant relationship with Adam and just like the first Adam and then Noah, the second Adam kind of, but Israel, the third Adam, we might say these ectypes violate the covenant. And so we need the, a new and better Adam, Jesus, who, um, lives with faithful love and knowledge of God. What do you make of that? Yeah. I forgot this verse was here because, you know, this was one of the main points for teaching through the progressive covenantalism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's for, for the covenant of Adam, it's like some people think. That yeah. I mean, I, I think even without this, we could still defend a covenant oh, yeah. at creation, but this shores it up for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Even though I know a lot of people just reject it for the reasons I, I gave, but I, I just don't know that... Um, those reasons hold up for me. The only other thing that I want to point out in Hosea is towards the end in Hosea 13, there's a really poor translation in the CSB and maybe in some other English translations as well. But in Hosea 13 verse 14, 
Our CSB says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. I, I think these should be questions. Should I ransom them from Sheol? Should I redeem them from death? Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So um, the whole point is, if you have this promise of redemption and ransom, and then you go on to say, I'm not going to have compassion, it doesn't make any sense. So it's like a deliberative. Should I? Should I? No, I'm not going to. The ESV has it as questions. Do they? What do they say? Says, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Question mark. Shall I redeem them from death? Question mark. Yeah. And then the it's an implied no. And then it's a direct address to death. Death, where are your barbs? Put them to work. Sheol, where's your sting? Make it happen. Because I'm turning over these people to you. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then it's only in the resurrection, of course, that death's sting is no longer permitted to operate in the same way. I got lost. Sorry. I don't know what you're, the point you're trying to make. Were you were you looking at the verses? Yeah. Why don't you read verse well, 14? Well, I started to look down. <clears throat> oh. Should I ransom them from the grave? Should I redeem them from death? O death, bring on your terrors. O death, bring on your plagues. For I will not take pity on them. Dude, this is a great example where the NLT has the best translation out of the ESV and the CSV. Oh, really? That's the way. It sh- that's the okay, way I think I it was, should be. I was confused. I'm yeah, not sure what you were trying to say. What the NLT has is good oh. because it's asking two questions with an implied no. I'm not going to rescue these people, and then it calls directly to death and Sheol to do their work, and then it's a declaration of. Uh, failing you know i'm not going to show you compassion yeah Mm. so i like the nlt the best that is bizarre because some people speak pejoratively of the nlt for not being Mm -hmm. you know literal enough or something i like it the more but this brings the actual intent of what's going on through way clearer than either translation that we're using that is odd i've mostly only ever heard the nlt kind of dismissed or put down a little bit, you know, yeah. As an as an inferior translation, but it seems like it's more accurate. That's probably at least in on this verse, you know. Mm. Well, the other time, okay. Well, whatever. Yeah, I've read through the Pentateuch and the NLT, and there were sections that I didn't really like, sure. but there were others that I did like. It's more hit and miss. So we should do our own NLT. Well, I think this is a good argument for everybody to learn Hebrew and Greek. Mm. Amen. Just kidding. Oh. No, it's probably good always to be a little bit cautious when being overly critical of these good translations that we have by people who are way smarter than us combined. But I did do a significant amount of research on that verse when I was doing some New Testament use of the old work, and pretty much everyone was in agreement. These are not helpful translations, which it you know raises the question, how come it well, still I, makes it through? Right. I, you know, obviously, they're objectors somewhere but I'm not coming across them. Hmm. Or it's a good case to be made that if you're reading a passage, read it in a few different translations and see the differences and, you know, contemplate them. Exactly. Yeah. Which, of course, involves reading it in at least one translation to begin with Hmm. and then supplementing your study. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy on the apps on your phone. 
You're going to switch it real quick. That's great. Yeah. Hosea doesn't close on on just this terrible message, but like you said, you know, God's going to take pity on them, and there's hope for healing his people because God's grace is going to be stronger than, than the sin that Israel wants to cling to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's an echo in Hosea 14.9 of Psalm 1 and 2, right? Where in Psalm 1, it talks about the way of the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked are is obviously going to lead to destruction. And then in Psalm 2, there's that call to the kings of the earth to be wise. And the same is taking place here. Jude. Hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. Do, 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 do. Do, do, do. Totally is this one of Jesus's brothers, Jude? Yeah. Maybe? This is another, you know, half-brother, we half might brother, say. Right. But yeah, he and James and Jude are brothers, so therefore we'd uh, make that same connection. Mm. Evie asked me this week if Joseph was Jesus's father. And I was like, yeah. Well, you can say yes and yes. no. And uh, yeah, well, that's where I stopped. And I was like, I'm not sure how to explain oh, to a yeah. six-year-old. Well, all you need to say is, well, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and we shouldn't press that too far, lest we become heretics. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll try that next time. Well, I'll, I'm, that's the text I'm preaching on Sunday, oh. is Gabriel's announcement to Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, mm-hmm. and she'll conceive and have a son and name him Jesus. And um, yeah, how do you explain that? Well, I just want to see mature... Because she doesn't know the word conceive, so I wasn't, you know, I could use yeah. that, but that doesn't mean anything to her. No. Yeah. So. What does fatherhood mean to her right now? I mean, she's calling Matthew her dad sometimes, right? <laughs> That's true. So, like, Joseph at least qualifies in the same way that Matthew qualifies to be her dad. Right. Does she know what a stork is? <laughs> you could go that yeah. route. Yeah. So, speaking of which, maybe you guys can help me out. Um, in Luke... One twenty-six, the Gabriel angel Gabriel is sent to Nazareth to Mary, and almost every English translation says he was sent to the Virgin Mary. You know, a virgin who was there twice. It says virgin, but it's this Greek word Parthenos that can be translated either young woman. woman or virgin, and and I think it should be young woman in both of those cases instead of virgin because there's no note of clarification that would give us rise to talk about a sexual status? How do you even, like, what's the right terminology for that? Like someone's sexual, like, history, activity? I don't, what's the right label for this? It's inside that triangle right there. Yeah. Can I read you the paragraph I'm thinking about saying on Sunday? Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, most translations give a key piece of information away as a result of a linguistic oddity. The word rendered virgin throughout is the same word that also simply me- refers to young woman, particularly one of marriageable age. The word by itself does not connote virginity. It is only when it is set in a context communicating sexual abstinence that it should be translated virgin. For example, the same term is used twice in Genesis 24:15, translated in one instance as girl and the other as virgin. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, no man had been intimate with her. The reason that translators can confidently assume 
the second appearance of Parthena should be translated as virgin instead of young woman or girl is because of the narrator's comment regarding her sexual activity. It would be best to render the first two appearances of this term in Luke 127 as young woman in order to allow the narrative drama to build until the point that Mary reveals that she is a virgin in 134. But alas, they've already given it away. Unlike Mary. Uh, I wouldn't add that last section. I was going to say, you're not going to do that. Wait, you I would not say that last line. That would be so funny. I might say, alas, they've already given it away, but I wouldn't add, What's unlike a- Mary. That, that would be a little bit too That's- goofy. Oh, I think that's funny. I mean, it's one of those things that crosses my mind that I'm like, man, if I were in a small Bible study, Mm -hmm. I would definitely do this kind of thing. Or even if I was writing a book. Right. But for like a sermon moment, seems like that's a little bit too... People would laugh. I would laugh. Some people would laugh. Some people would not catch on at all. And then then some people would feel like you're making light of this whole situation. Making light of human existence in a historical story. It's kind of like Mark Driscoll's sermon um, on Jesus's genealogy that he called Ho 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 with the three prostitutes, oh. you know. I mean, there aren't really three prostitutes in there, but that's kind of what he gets at. Sure. You know, Tamar and... Um, if we've learned anything, it's not to be like Mark yeah, Driscoll. Yeah, so th- like, it's like that kind of thing that's m- that makes me mm-hmm. say I shouldn't put any... Right sexual innuendo jokes in my sermons. I mean, probably I don't even need Driscoll to teach me that, but (laughs) (laughs) um, it's a lesson I've learned nonetheless. Yeah. So should I like give that paragraph in there? Is that just like uninteresting, unhelpful information? I would say it's possibly interesting, but not helpful. It's well, it's kind of helpful, but not really. Yeah. It's helpful if someone really does think that, this is specifically indicating that she was, you know, regarding her sexual activity. Yeah. But how helpful is that to correct that thinking? Yeah. So I think I'd have to line, like add two reasons why it's helpful. Number one, because it like steals away the narrative drama because we don't know that there's an obstacle to this promise coming to pass until Mary points it out. So there's that piece where you like someone gives away the plot twist ahead of time and then the second thing would be some people are so defensive of the doctrine of the virgin conception that they want to emphasize any possible hint of it but in doing so they actually weaken it because they're no longer following the normal rules of translation so by just being clear that you can't see this doctrine everywhere you look it gives more credibility by um, only drawing on the evidence that actually exists instead of grasping for straws. I mean, it's a good point. It might be a little bit getting in the weeds. It might. And if you're saying that, then I should probably not do it. Maybe I'll do a podcast on Parthenos. Dude, if I were a single young woman, I would start a podcast called the Parthenos Podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. It's yeah. not just good. That's good. <laughs> That's great. If only. You know what Jude references? The Book of Enoch. One Enoch. Does he? He quotes from One Enoch. That's pretty cool. Where? Um, Somewhere in there. Verse 14. Talks about Enoch. Yeah, that could be it. Um, 
because I don't think there's a prophecy in our Old Testament that Enoch gives. Mm. But there's a there's some Second Temple literature one and two Enoch. Maybe they're even three and four. I can't remember. Yeah, first Enoch one nine. Okay, there we go. It's that listen thing. That's great. And then there are other Second Temple references. Steve Aldridge is the guy to talk to if you have any questions about Jude. But um, right, that's I'd, interesting. Yeah. So I would just want to point out a couple things. Number one, um, Jude is writing initially intending to like rejoice about the salvation that they hold in common, but then he finds it necessary to appeal to them to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all, because there were some people who um, were infiltrating the church. They were turning the grace of God into sensuality. So probably like this idea that because we have God's grace, we can do whatever we want with our lives and our bodies and then denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. So probably saying things like, Jesus doesn't have the authority to direct the life of our community. We can be our own masters and Lord. We can live however we would please. That's troublesome. Mm -hmm. And then that gives rise to these um, descriptions of apostates, past and present, and the doom that awaits them. So then the payoff for this whole exploration by the end is that we're exhorted to build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait expect- expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And then um, this benediction at the end that's often quoted, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And that is a benediction that the apostates would not have approved of. Mm. Do you think verse 6 is talking about the Nephilim? I the do. Nephilim? Or the Nephilim? Uh, it very well could be. Because it's talking about the angels that were getting out of line. Yeah, that could be it. I'm sure that that is one of a, a number of options. What does your footnote say, AJ? Angels might refer to the fall of Satan as angelic followers, but no Old Testament passage clearly describes this event. Jewish tradition understood them as the sons of God in Genesis 6. Yeah. First Enoch says something about it. Nice. So maybe there's that connection there. Yeah, and of course there's the debate, are the sons of God and the Nephilim the same people? And I know, Matthew, your conclusion was that they are. Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. They yeah. were the, They were the offspring. Of the sons of God and the daughters of man. Okay, so they're one generation removed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for joining us on the Whoa, resurrection. whoa, whoa. We have a, the book of Revelation, chapters one through six to get into here. Oh, my bad. John the Revelator. John the Revelator. Have you listened to that song? I think I've told you I quoted that in a footnote for a paper for Dr. Kostenberger. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I probably sent it to you. Cheeky footnotes. Yeah, I pretty much just keep telling you the same thing all the time. Is it the Depeche Mode song? I don't recall. I don't think so. Now, interestingly enough, as we turn to the book of Revelation, it is not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. And even more interesting, it's not the revelation of of John. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave 
Jesus to show oh. his servant John. It is really confusing. Uh, but God gives the revelation of Christ to Jesus, to John, so that we can see Jesus. What's more, I think most people who read Revelation, uh, they approach it in a particular way that I find unhelpful and um, not in keeping with the intended effect of the letter or the intended response that the author wants the listeners to have. So I think a lot of people read this and try to speculate about what will happen at the end of the world. Is that fair? Yeah, that's how I always heard it growing up. And I always found it creepy and kind of unsettling. Yeah. So I don't like that. Yeah, and we just had a a new member give her membership testimony on Sunday. And she mentioned growing up, she watched this movie, A Thief in the Night, and was freaked out of her mind. And a lot of that is drawn from images in here. And of course, Revelation does talk about what happens at the end and what happens next. But the reason it's given is not for people to speculate about timelines or something like that. Instead, this book is given to be read, to be listened to, and most importantly, to be obeyed. In chapter 1, verse 3, blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, or who do what is written in it, or who obey what is written in it. What does your translation say, AJ? Reads, listen, and obey. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you thought about Revelation in that way? You're supposed to obey. obey what's in this book. And I think maybe I would think, okay, yeah, but it's just talking about the first five chapters. Yeah. Like, don't be like those churches who are lukewarm. Sure. Yep. But it goes beyond that. Um, because it's the whole prophecy, mm. you know, the whole book. Right. I I found that I find that pretty challenging. Absolutely. It changes the way that you approach the book, I think. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think that's a good good word as we start reading this book. Now, of course, there's the first picture of Jesus coming up to the throne of the Father on the clouds. So in chapter one, verse seven, this is a place where a lot of people I think are imagining, oh, this is a like Jesus coming down to earth and everybody will see him as he's coming down here. But we're getting the perspective wrong. We're, we're reading this book anthropocentrically, um, like centered on us and our perspective, instead of understanding that all of this is from the perspective of the throne in the throne room. So actually it's the son of man, Jesus going up because of what you just said, this vision is from God given to Jesus yeah. to give to. It's not John. John's vision from yeah. his perspective, right? Yeah. And then as we read throughout the book, you'll see that we keep coming back to this central location, which is the throne room. Right. And and that's where the lamb, the son of man is. So he's come up. Ascension is what's in view here. And um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Even though popular imagination is, oh, well, because of this line, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. You know, every eye will see him. He must be coming down from the sky so everyone will be able to look up and see him. But but that's not what's going on here. Now, the first several chapters are seven letters to seven churches. What struck you about these letters, AJ? Or, Or maybe even not what struck you, but what should we 
observe that all of them have in common? They have in common that they're not perfect churches, but God still cares enough about them to point it out. And Do they all have good aspects, too? Um, except for they one, each, I except think. Except for one. Yeah, so it, it's like it gets progressively worse and then better. Sure. Um, the, what I'm trying to get at, and what yeah. you're kind of grabbing onto, is that these are actual churches. Right. So, like, these are actual words of instruction that reach churches. These are actual warnings, which should clue us into the fact that everything in the letter is intended for these churches, and it's intended for them to obey what they hear and to respond to the whole thing, which should also clue us into the fact that um, while there's relevance for us in Revelation, it's not first about us. We have to ask, how did the first readers hear this? Who would they have identified, and what does that teach us about interpreting this book? Um, it's not just a mystical thing for our future. It was something for their present. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk about that next week once we read a little bit yeah. further. That's, yeah, that's good to have that perspective. Yeah, and maybe it's something that will help people that will rearticulate, recapitulate. We might say, mm-hmm. you know, that'll come up next week. But but what I want to say is that in these first chapters we have seven letters, propositional, you know, statements to these churches. And then the rest of the book is like a color commentary that fills in in apocalyptic graphic images the realities that are communicated in these letters. Okay. So one is a more literal, straightforward this. It's not all like purely literalistic because there are lots of things in here like, to the one who conquers, I would give the right to eat from the tree of life. I'll give you the crown of life. Um, you know, you'll get this white stone. So there are all these promises that indicate fullness of life after you pass through death. Uh, so it's not all literalistic. But then the rest of Revelation is a like apocalyptic prophetic commentary that helps them uh, grab onto this and that really grabs onto them. Okay. I don't know if I've heard it explained exactly like that before. So I'm interested to hear... I'm interested to discuss this next time. Yeah, unfortunately, you weren't part of our church yet, but there was a time where I used to do this Bible study on every Friday afternoon at one o'clock, and I worked through the entire book of Revelation, Hmm. like a chapter at a time. It took forever. I bet. I think this is one of the books that I don't read much. I don't, I'm not like, oh, yeah, I'm not excited about reading Revelation. Well, um, probably a lot of people aren't excited to read Revelation, or they're excited for the wrong reasons. Yeah, you know, that's usually what about, happens. They're jazzed about ch- plotting yeah. timelines and stuff, and that's their thing. Yeah. Well, let me make just a couple final comments, unless, Matthew, you wanted to weigh in on anything here. No, I think you're doing great. Okay, thank you for that word of affirmation. Yeah. Wow, what a great way to wrap up a Friday, the word of affirmation. You're looking nice, too. Oh, thanks, dude. Man. I'm going to go home with a spring in my step. So I think that if you look at these letters, at the end of each one where there's this word of promise to the one who conquers, the conquering in view is always faithfulness to God paired with faithfulness that even uh, brings you to death in imitation of Christ. And there's a way of reading that, I think that's helpful, where we pair it with statements that, we can imagine God would was saying to you, Adam in the garden, 
like is in Adam and Eve as the serpents there. Like, hey, um, if you had conquered the serpent, if you had exercised dominion, you would have had the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. Instead, they're cut off from the tree of life, right? Yeah. Um, and then, hey, Adam and Eve, if you had been faithful to the point of death, I would have raised you back up through this crown of life, right? Um, hey, if you if you had conquered, even through your death, you'd never be harmed by the second death. If you had conquered the serpent, I would have fed you with this hidden manna. You know, I think every single line we could attribute to them and then think about our lives and understand how um, we, like the first Adam, are offered these same things and it's made possible in the second Adam. Can we do that with all of these similar, the similar overcomer abiding theme throughout of the Johannine writings? Does that work too? Maybe. I think the... What drew my attention sense. to this was that linguistic connection of the tree of life in the garden of God. Okay. You know, paradise oh, is sure, garden. Sure. So I think with that, as I was teaching through Genesis one time, it caught my my attention. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The final thing I'd I'd want to say about this is is you're reading through the book of Revelation. Um it it is really complicated and confusing. And we'll make it super clear. Just really pay attention to the symbolic numbers. Yeah, we'll try to exactly what they're they're all for. (laughs) Yeah. After you look at all the numbers, what you need to do is to um, count those many letters into your translation of the Bible and then backwards while listening to an ACDC song and you'll get a vision Mm. of what the truth is. Actually, don't do any of that. But it's, it's complicated and... Obviously, there are differences of interpretation among a lot of people who genuinely love God. And we can really only offer one interpretation as we walk through it because we can't like re-dissect the book every week. So in the coming couple of weeks that we're looking at this, I'll give the way that I look at it. And I think it's the it, it makes the best sense of the evidence. And um, if you're interested, I wrote a theology of revelation for my doctor doctoral supervisor that I would be happy to send you. And in that I have outlined kind of the five different approaches to revelation. Um, I don't think I could rattle them off all in my head. You know, there's this preterist approach that says everything except the last chapter of revelation has already been fulfilled. Um, There's a futurist approach, which is kind of like everything pretty much except for what's in the letters to the churches is future. Um, There's, an eclectic approach that brings a bunch of things together. There's a, I'd have to look them up. I should have looked it up ahead of time. There, there's one where it's like, um, it's Rome. So I think the reformers were all like, this is Rome, like the Roman Catholic church. But of course, a lot of time has passed. So the strength of that interpretation is pretty much lost. Sure. I forget all the, you know, what they all are, but. Um, of course, we probably might've said that too, if we lived it. Right. Well, and I think that's the the beauty of the approach that I'm going to take, which is this describes the Christian experience between Christ's ascension, you know, that's what we get, and his uh, future return when heaven comes down to earth. And it's like human history keeps working itself out in very similar ways. And there are always Babylon figures and Rome figures and 
um, sometimes we are that figure, which is why there's a warning to separate yourselves, right, in mm-hmm. these letters. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it is recapitulated throughout time, and um, that's, I think, the, the easiest way to read the book, or at least the most sensible. But there are a lot of people who don't agree with that. We'll show them. Oh, man, we'll show them. Actually, it's still complicated, but... Matthew, what's a fast fact about Revelation? It's the last book in the Bible. Bet you, bet you didn't know that. Do you know that? Yeah. How do you know? Take heed to verse 3. Blessed is he. Yeah. What is this thing called? The LXX Hebrew. Hebrew. <laughs> oh, what? The canon? No, this. The Table dic- of contents? The- the Give dictionary. the creeds and confessions in the back. The dictionary in the back. Oh. That doesn't count. Oh. No. I think it's interesting. I'll probably actually read through Revelation. Sweet. At some point. Yeah, looking forward to you joining us next week on the Resurrection Church Podcast as we continue to persevere to the very end. Mm. Is all of us who have begun this journey of reading through the Bible in a year, uh, see it to completion as the Lord himself brings us to completion for the day of Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. Finally, we want to remind you about our upcoming event called The Lord of the Rings and the Hope of Christmas on December 16th at 7 o'clock p.m. This is a free event. It's going to be a lot of fun. I am really looking forward to it. We're going to have some trivia. We have a boatload of prizes coming in, including the recently released illustrated edition of the Silmarillion. Uh, It is going to be a good time. So sign up. Um, You can sign up at eventbrite.com or indicate that you're going on Facebook. And to be honest, even if you show up the day of, we'll still let you in the door. But we're excited for this event. And I am in particular excited to share about the hope of Christmas and the way that Tolkien so beautifully pictures the hope that is bound up in the incarnation of Christ in his multi-layered saga, The Lord of the Rings. Thanks for joining our great podcast. If you would like any more information about Resurrection Church, you can find that at resurrectionmn.org. 